name is Ruth Kattamuri and I'm the co-director of the Asia Research Center at the LSE. It is a pleasure to welcome you all to the launch of Not By Reason Alone by N.K. Singh, more so on the 60th anniversary of India's Republic Day. LSE's own contributions to India's development have been through its intellectual engagement and its alumni. B.R. Ambedkar, father of India's constitution, K.R. Narayanan, former president of India, um, Jyoti Basu were all former students of the LSE. It is also said that Nehru had a permanent seat in his cabinet for Professor Harald Lasky, a well-known political scientist from LSE. The last couple of decades have been extremely interesting for India. The global community has rediscovered India's potential. India can amaze when things operate with reason, and it can be mind-boggling when they do not operate with reason. But the coexistence of reason and no reason in India is what makes it very fascinating for the rest of the world. And it is in the hands of this eminent panel we have here today, as well as each one of its citizens, both at home and abroad, to ensure her sustained and inclusive growth. It's always a pleasure to work with N.K. Singh, as is evident from the participants as well as the audience gathered here today. I'm particularly pleased, N.K., with the proportional participation of women in this event. We have um, this book is a compilation of articles that N.K. had written in both the Indian Express and the Financial Express. This event has been sponsored by various people, and they are the Reliance Group, CII, NDTV, and HD Media Limited. And we, uh, we convey our thanks to all the sponsors. The flow of the event today is going to be that uh, Shekhar Gupta would come up right after me for his comments, followed by Shobhna Bharatya, who's the chairman of Hindustan Times. After which Bharkadath will moderate the panel discussion as well as the Q&A. We will conclude with NK's response and the official launch of the book right at the end. Thank you very much and thank you all for filling up this hall. Uh, it's a tribute to NK's charm and organizational skills. He can get people together where in any part of the world. London is like his second home, but I think if you if you suggested Helsinki to him, he would have done well. Copenhagen, more in fashion these days, he would have, would have done fine. Now, uh, I'm reminded of something that uh, Mr. Vajpayee had once said, Atal Bihari Vajpayee, in a different context. And people, there were rumors of whether he was retiring or he was getting tired and old. He said, he said neither tiring nor retiring. Now, that is something you can say about N.K. Singh at any point of time. He's completely untiring and hopefully he'll never retire and give us <coughs> some of us who have some uh, who have some years to catch up with him uh, hope and inspiration um, of the many things that nk has told me over many decades now i think three decades almost two always stick to my mind uh, and because those two give you a very good example of how a, an instinctive reformer can bring about change even in a very difficult environment one uh, and in fact, the two persons involved in both those stories are sitting right here on this panel, N.K. and Montek. One is the story of how these two came out of a lift or entered a lift in Geneva when they had gone for a multilateral discussion and they found the lift was smelling of petrol. 
So they immediately exchanged glances and figured that some members of the Indian delegation had been there. Now this is about two decades back when uh, to get something dry cleaned in India, you had to put it in petrol. And the import of modern dry cleaning machines was not allowed. So NK, NK goes back to Delhi and he's sitting somewhere in the Ministry of Commerce or, or Revenue or someplace and he starts working out something in pre-reform era to allow the import of dry cleaning machines. So all of us now enter lifts and come out without smelling of smelling like a gas station. Uh, the second is also a story of a similar type. I think again uh, usual suspects NK and Montek uh, checking into a hotel in New York. Uh, was it the UN Park Plaza, one of those hot usual hotels, and discovered that uh, as Indian citizens, they cannot use their credit cards to, to check into a, a hotel overseas because Indian citizens were not allowed that. So they come back and they again start working, uh, as they say, moving the files up and down and sideways to somehow get us lesser mortals that privilege. So all of us can now use our Indian credit cards wherever we go. So those are some examples of how change is brought about. NK is in a very interesting situation right now because he's partly in politics, uh, partly in government, partly in media. That's typical of NK. His mind works like a nine-band radio. Uh, he, can, he can multitask like no one else can do. Uh, I sometimes liken him to a trapeze artist who performs in the field of politics, governance, and also uh, corporate life. In fact, he's like a trapeze artist who likes to operate not on one tightrope, but two tightropes at the same time. One between politics and bureaucracy, and the other, NK, between politics and corporates. And if you give him those tightropes, he will not just walk on them, he will waltz on them. That's his quality. And that's why while doing all this, he can keep his deadlines, he can s send his articles on time, and he can get many things done, including getting me and Shobna together in an event. <laughs> we are supposed to compete, but when you're friends of NK, you can, com you can compete elsewhere, but not when you're in NK's vicinity. In so many years of watching NK in Delhi, I haven't seen him make many enemies. NK makes friends. And a few occasions on which some people have chosen to be become his enemies before the rest of us figured uh, what they would do as enemies, we found that NK had already won them over. So that's his charm. He's got a big challenge in his hands now. Uh, and the challenge is to do something about the state of Bihar. He's a member of parliament from the state of Bihar. Uh, he's a very close advisor of the chief minister who's doing wonderful work in Bihar. Bihar now is, one of, is the fastest growing state in India from being a complete basket case. So all his skills now and, <laughs> and, and his, uh, all his skills now and his contacts across the political spectrum uh, from JDU to BJP to the Congress party will now be required uh, NK to bring Bihar uh, back in the national mainstream and, and to make Bihar a real beneficiary of this growth. So this book um, has its thoughts. It's the second in the series. I'm sure there will be many more. He's been now threatening to do one on the reform of Indian parliament. NK, uh, stick to Bihar. That might be easier than reforming Indian parliament. <laughs> so on that note, Shobna, may I request you to Uh, thank you. It's a privilege for me to be associated with this very prestigious book launch. As Shekhar said, NK is a person who is multifaceted. NK is a man who's seen it all. 
from being a bureaucrat and an academic to now being a parliamentarian, a politician. He not only knows the reforms that India needs, but more importantly, what spurs them or what holds them back. As a reader and as a publisher of his columns in the Hindustan Times and the articles in uh, Hindustan, I have relished NK's wisdom, his lucidity, both grounded in the real and the very practical world of politics. And the overview that he provides, to my mind, the perspective is absolutely important and necessary if India is to make reforms a continuing story uh, in 2010 and beyond. As a fellow member of parliament with him in the upper house, I have seen NK hold forth with a lot of passion on the need to push reforms even at the cost of opposition very often from his own ranks. In fact, the pending uh, insurance reform was just one classic example of a policy held ransom to politics. And as the articles in NK's book bring out, similar political obstacles have held up crucial reforms in areas such as taxation, administration, education and one has seen NK very passionately try and bring about a certain sense in our proceedings. Uh, our democracy is a model for the world at large but sadly uh, opposition politics has devolved into opposing for the sake of opposing. Uh, we saw that during the Indo-US nuclear deal, we saw that with the pension reforms and we are seeing it now with India's climate change policy. The same political party that kick-started a particular reform has no qualms at all about opposing it simply because they are not in power. And this is proving to be a serious challenge for our political economy. Uh, the other challenge also comes from coalition politics. Today it's no longer a question of whether regional parties will play an important role or not. Today it's a reality. So we have to see how can we get the best deal for India even whilst going about trying to keep the interests of these groups at heart. We can't really allow parochial interests to subsume national interests. It's at times like this that NK's book becomes even more important because in 1991, a lot of the reforms could happen with executive action from Delhi. So whether it was decontrol, whether it was taxation issues, the second generation reforms are going to take a lot more persuasion, a lot more of working together. And NK's book, not by reason alone, will be very handy when, if we are to push through reforms on the power sector and many other areas where the concurrence of the states is required. So just uh, to end, I would like to wish him all the best on the release of this book. Uh, as somebody who has not only initiated, but also observed reforms over the years, you can't get closer to the ground while keeping your eyes on the big picture than N.K. Singh. I'm sure this book will be extremely useful. Thank you very much. Thank you so much, Shobna. Before we start this very special panel discussion and uh, participatory question and answer session with you, if I can just request somebody to take the lectern off the stage. Uh, since this is being filmed for television, we just need to have a clear view.
Well, a very good afternoon to everybody here. It's delightful to see a, a packed hall. And as everybody has said, it really is a tribute to NKS Charm, especially so many students whom we hope to hear uh, many questions from in the course of the next uh, 60 minutes. As the Indian Republic turns 60 years old, the interesting thing is that many of our conventional assumptions about nationhood politics and economics have actually been challenged. Some have been turned on their head in the last couple of years. A bad year of recession, which has only just begun to wane, has made us question and debate whether globalization and capitalism are good words. A year of terrorism, 2611 still lives on in the minds and hearts of Indians, has made us question whether we need to change the way we conduct our politics and our security system. As American President Barack Obama gets tagged ever so often with being a new age socialist, there is an unprecedented focus on how the wealthy spend their money and what their contribution is going to be to an increasingly <coughs> fragile world. And as China emerges very clearly as a power to reckon with, there are even questions over whether a messy democracy is the best way forward. For India especially, it's been a very interesting year. The government has just come into power. It's widely believed has ridden on the back of welfare schemes like the National Rural Employment Guarantee Scheme and farm loan waivers running into 60,000 crores. <coughs> What does that mean for what we used to consider smart economics? Is there a consensus anymore on what smart economics is? And if there is one, given that the opposite of what was once considered smart economics seems to yield political results, does that mean that good politicians must by definition be scared of good economics? That's how we framed our conversation today. And I want to start with NK, of course. NK, you know, very interesting uh, title not by reason alone. But the question becomes that in the fragile, ever-changing world we live in, what was once considered reasonable may now be looked upon as unreasonable. For example, nationalization of banks in India was the dark ages. Now you've got Obama doing it, almost. What is reasonable? Well, I think I agree with you, Barkha, that what is reasonable depends from what kind of a vantage point you're looking at. What kind of a crystal gazing are you doing? Isn't it reasonable that an Indian economy which is growing at barely over 4% is effortlessly growing at now over 7% is likely to grow at 8-9%? Uh, isn't it very apparent that the policies we began in 1991, yes, in a dialectics where politics and sensible economics pulled in opposite direction, and how to bring about a kind of a convergence between good politics and good economics. And what I have really learned is that if you act in from the politics of fear, then you are likely to end up with the politics of folly. Because I do not think that politics is the art of the possible. It is more the art of being able to balance what is reasonable from what is disastrous. And sometimes what is sensible may not be really acceptable. So how to bring about a convergence between acceptability and sensible economics? An example of disaster? An or example dis of disaster, for instance, would be that if we reverse the hands of the clock, began to renationalize Indian industry, re began to raise tax rates, began to raise customs rates. If we did all that, that would be disastrous. It would be going against the current of history. It would be reversing a time clock in which many of us have joined hands to move forward. 
Mukesh Ambani as, as perhaps India's most prominent industrialist, do you see something quite peculiar having happened in the second tenure of the UPA? It's a government minus the left, that it created the impression that there was going to be a sort of speed neck base of economic reforms. Yet we actually see, in a sense, the reverse. We see much more caution. We see a, a, a greater reluctance at proceeding with what were once known as reforms. Does that disappoint you, or do you understand it in the light of the recession, or the year of recession that we've just come out of? Well, I think, Barkha, we've got to recognize the fact that uh, what the world has gone through in 2008 is the single most uh, important uh, economic event after the Great Depression and uh, coming out of that or in that context if we look at India we are in a fortunate position where relative to really all the countries in the world mm. we have uh, some of the strongest balance sheets so the country has a very strong balance sheet companies uh, within our country in economic terms are doing well and the consumer is growing and is not in debt at all and that gives you a great position to start off with when the world really and the economic situation in the world is still at peril uh, given that India's challenge and I think that you know what NK talked about mm -hmm. 9% is a default rate of growth. Uh, our potential is really high double digit. And to achieve that, it really now goes uh, to reform what is not obvious. It's really, and India's strengths really in this new world are going to be the soft skills, right? India's strengths are going to be really all about uh, soft power. In a new world that I believe will restructure itself. We have not yet seen the complete restructuring. What we have seen is the announcement that the old world as we knew it has come to an end and the world as a whole will restructure itself. I personally believe that this is an opportunity to rebalance the world, mm. to make sure that all the six or seven billion people on this planet uh, have equal opportunity. And within that, India really is at the doorsteps of a new developmental model. And in doing so, I think that we've got to take our time and we did, need not rush into things just for the sake of announcements or just for the sake of... But does of that mean more things. government? You know, the, the, it used to be that smart economics meant less government, more private sector. Does this now mean that the government or the state remains the essential agent of change? I don't think so. It doesn't really, it means more responsible government. It doesn't mean more government. It means uh, delivering. It means more institutions. And it really uh, means creation of more institutions, really in all spheres of life. And uh, I personally believe, as I look at the rest of the world, uh, that India is in a fortunate situation. Uh, as we start this next decade of the 21st century, that uh, we have uh, reasonably less baggage than most other countries and most other economies. We have a very young population and uh, we can move forward in a way that we can really demonstrate to the rest of the world a developmental model 
and uh, a development model that includes all, that creates opportunities for all. And uh, where we talk about creation of wealth and then distribution of wealth. And I think that's the opportunity. Monte Carlo, while you're talking about the role of government, it's quite interesting that one of the things that NK says in his book, and I don't know if he's changed his mind about this now, in the light of the times that we have just seen, is the farm loan waiver that took place in the last government, which uh, NK, if you remember, you write saying no smart person can justify a 60,000 crore farm loan waiver. But to my point about the fact that even minus the left, this government seems hesitant, the Indian government, the Indian state seems hesitant to move forward on reform. Is that because there is a re-evaluation now of whether unbridled capitalism is actually the way forward? Well, I mean, I love the way you're <coughs> putting, putting forward sort of extreme and provocative phrases. I'm hoping uh, you'll bite the bait. You know, unbridled capital. I mean, you know, this is, I think about a year ago, the Financial Times, I mean, you're an excellent company. Because a year ago, the Financial Times ran a whole series of articles saying, is this the end of capitalism? Of course it wasn't. But everybody pronounced on the subject. I mean, let, let's be clear. I, I think... I agree with what Mukesh said. I mean, just look back. We're, first of all, we are focusing too much on completely academic notions of what are reforms. I mean, as if there's a list of things, and if you haven't done A, B, C, D, E, F, you haven't done reforms. Now, the fact of the matter is, the most important thing about the last five years, that before the crisis, India grew at 9% for four years running. And in the middle of a humongous crisis, it's averaging 7% for two years running. But food now, prices continue no, no, to soar, let, let sugar finish. and milk so continue to cost The first thing you want to recognize is stop bothering about some inputs that you think are missing. And please acknowledge that there are some outputs. Now, one view is this is all happening in spite of the government. It may well be that we have a very dynamic economy. But as far as the government is concerned, this is not a situation where we should start saying, why aren't we doing reforms? I think the most important thing was to manage the downturn well. That's what every government was doing in the last two years. And I think on that standard, India has done exceptionally well. Because, you know, look, 10 years ago, if you had told me, are we going to get 7% growth? I would have said, well, I hope so. And here we've got two years of a humongous crisis, and we're averaging 7%. So something's going right. And it cannot be the case that an economy does that well without a policy framework that is supportive of growth. But has the policy framework shifted? Are you going to answer my provocative question? Well, <laughs> you know, I, I think you're, I, I don't, I believe you're understating the fact that there's a tremendous consensus in the direction that we are moving. The government has consistently said that we will keep on moving. But the issue is, I don't think there are little magic uh, changes that you can make which would suddenly cause people to sort of do things hugely differently. Actually, the real challenge now, and I think NK's book brings that out very nicely, it's not an issue of government and no government. It's an issue of the dysfunctionality of certain types of interventions, and on the other hand, sensible intervention. Even, even 10 years ago, it was known that the size of the government, if you include Social Security, in the industrialized countries, is much bigger than the size of the government in India. So if we were going to become industrialized, government was going to expand in size. But it would be doing different things. It wouldn't be running hotels. It wouldn't be setting up little manufacturing outfits. And I think that restructuring of the role of government is really what reforms is about. 
And I mean, that's a big job still to be done. And that's okay. what a lot of the articles in the book point out. And we'll come back to the price of onions as we, uh, as okay. we go along talking about uh, <laughs> the growth. But if I can get Chris Patton in now. Uh, China. China is held up today as this great barometer of growth. And yet for, for those of us who come from democracies, we can't even imagine living the Chinese way. Is that the only route to economic growth? You'd be amazed if I said yes. Uh, <laughs> I would be. <laughs> no, no, China has done spectacularly well. Um, China, I think this is one of the gee whiz statistics that um, one picks up along the road. Um, China exports as much in a day now as it did in a year in 1978 before the reforms uh, started. Uh, and the rest of the world benefits hugely from China's success. I'm not one of those who thinks that China succeeding is a threat. I am one of those uh, who thinks that uh, if I had to put my money in the long term on Google or the Chinese Communist Party, I'd put it on Google. <laughs> um, I, I am one of those who doesn't believe that China is the only society there has ever been uh, which, deny, which is able to deny the relationship between economic and technological development and political development. Uh, I don't for one moment think there is an automaticity uh, between economic growth uh, and, uh, and political change. And I'm slightly doubtful of Freedom House and other people who, who draw up indexes as though there were some such relationship. Um, but it seems to me that uh, India, even though I think India only exports about a seventh as much in marketable goods as, as China, uh, India has not suffered from a gulag um, uh, uh, a bamboo gulag. Uh, it hasn't had a man-made famine. Uh, it doesn't lock up um, people who disagree or are dissidents. And despite the huge ethnic uh, diversity of India and geographical diversity, it's held together. And I think that is a triumph for its, its political system. Um, and moreover, um, I don't think anybody has yet identified a single Indian member of Al-Qaeda, which it seems to me, it seems to me has some relationship to the uh, innate stability of democracy in India. So uh, I don't think madness, there, there, there is, it's, <laughs> of course, the trouble is um, uh, that to borrow from the title, yes. like other democracies, it's not just um, that you don't operate by reason alone. Sometimes politics in our democracies doesn't operate by reason at, at all, all. Um, <laughs> which is the real problem we face. But before I go to Meknath, you said you'd bet on Google and not on communist China, but can Google survive without the Chinese market? Sure, um, absolutely. The, the question is actually the other way around. Can the China survive the, without the question is whether you can, you can run an innovative economy, um, you can have the sort of technical um, diversity and innovation that one would like to see that you see in India which has all China's fantastic success. India has been incomparably more successful in developing global brands and multinationals um, and uh, it's also been uh, much more successful in its own technical innovation rather than buying um, technology in um, or sharing technology as part of joint ventures or frankly stealing technology which is what 
which is what the Americans used to do and what we used to do and, and something that we have arguments with China about today. I'm hugely in favor of China's economic success, but I think it has um, political lessons. So you raised this interesting argument that there is actually no necessary correlation between economic growth and, and political evolution. Meghnath, what does that mean for a country like ours? Because there was a time when, this, let's say, the two rupee uh, kilo rice schemes were damned as, as populist. But now there is a view uh, that direct cash transfers and so on, and we've, we've seen some of that in, in the form of schemes in Bihar, for example, uh, that this is working politically. Direct cash transfers were always more rational than two rupees a kilo rice. It still happens to be irrational, populist, and wasteful. <laughs> let, let's, let's, let's not get that anywhere. Now, I think the important point is that uh, India has increased its growth rate from 3.5% in the first 30 years of disastrous economic policy to 7 or 9%. I would like it to be 11 12%. If India is going to get rid of poverty, the first need is to industrialize much more rapidly, which requires the legal framework in land and labor uh, where people can set up large factories. You've got to take the rural population off the land, they're stuck in low productivity jobs, transfer them, give them 24 uh, in a sort of... But if you do that, you end up with what happened to the nano plant in West Bengal. It's not that simple anymore. No, this is why if you reform land laws, Right now, our land laws are based on 1894 Act passed by the, uh, by the British powers. Now, if you let buying and selling of land become slightly more rational than it is at present, stop presuming that government knows best, and let people like Mukesh go and buy land where they need and pay them proper price for it. Uh, you know, I would buy if I had the money, but I don't, but he has. So let him. And, and get the people off the land and into proper full-time jobs. Well, that's the only way to get but, into But poverty. here's the problem. And before I come to Venu, Mukesh, quick comment on that. The whole SEZ experiment, special no, 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 economic no, no, zones. SEZ. No, it all hasn't worked. Country. All it, over the country. I want it all over the country. You want it all over the country, but it hasn't worked even in the places no, no, it was meant to work SEZ in. SEZs are artificial things. You, you're bound to raise protests. Let it happen anywhere you like. Is it that simple to acquire land? This, this no, whole construct that let the market not. come in and buy land with, it is not. But not saying get them off the land anyway. No, no. Because it is not easy to buy land right now because the legal structure is so bad. If it was, then you won't need SEZ. You could but, buy land anyway. But, but let me give Make that like, I mean, this whole conversation says that, you know, Indians are emotional people. <laughs> <laughs> really? <laughs> Never. Never. And... And, and not very reasonable. And, 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 and land <laughs> is a very emotional issue. Yes. And I think that if we recognize that land is emotional, people feel attached to land. And as Meghnath said, like there are ways in which uh, you don't have to do it by government fiats. You don't have to do it by saying that some uh, planning commission has decided that this is the best place uh, for industry. That's why we're going to do it. You really got to do it by mutual agreement. And I think in, in that yeah, sense, so that, that is happening. It's, yeah. uh, you know, the good news is it's even happening in the SEZ. So yeah. as long as you do it uh, by mutual agreement, you understand that uh, it's an emotional issue and you are able to engage. And you don't think the Bengal experience has, has, has compelled us to maybe no, review that, that, the that's SEZ experiment? That's just an exception. It's an aberration, it's but, an absolute but, but wanting Mantas in the government. So how much of an aberration can it be? <laughs> <laughs> I give you a slightly different perspective. Yes.
So I think it's very important that you should not make the mistake of thinking that argument and debate is a sign of failure. I mean, it was a, a professor of the London School of Economics who sort of described us as argumentative yeah. Indians. The nature of yes. our politics is such that argument is the essence of life. So whatever we do, we should assume there will be a humongous big argument. <laughs> uh, people will discuss it, somebody will attack it, somebody else will support it. And basically, after a few years, when people are bored of that particular argument... They'll move on to another yeah, one. Thanks to... The media cannot continue <laughs> focusing on one issue. So you play a very crucial role, I think, in diverting attention to other issues. <laughs> this makes extant issues less controversial, and sensible compromise decisions get worked out. So I think you should not take the view... I mean, it's, it's a great pity. India should take pride in the fact that almost anything we do is made controversial, thoroughly debated, discussed, etc. Now, if those debates are described as an indication that the country doesn't want reform, we look very bad. But if you view this as a very active participation, in which unless you carry the argument, uh, you don't get change, it can look quite good. Now, obviously, this mustn't be interminable. Maybe it takes a year. We're talking about an accumulation of practice over a couple of decades, even more. I mean, so if it takes a couple of years, but it gets done, in the end, what it means is you ought to be acting on many fronts, have a lot of initiatives on the table, and every year, something or the other will get done. If you look back in the last 10 years, that is exactly the story. Things that were thought controversial one year get done in the next year, nobody even bothers about them. For example? For example, insurance. disinvestment. For insurance. insurance. I mean, no, take, take an even, yeah, insurance is one. But, you know, when the budget this year was uh, presented, I don't know how many TV interviewers kept sort of saying to me, why has the finance minister not mentioned disinvestment in his speech? And I pointed out that it's there in the budget documents, that the amount is going to be quite good. And if you look at it in the last six months, we've done a lot. So I think there's too much. Just watch what happens and judge the prospects for the next year on the basis of what's been happening, but the fact not remains, on the basis of some arbitrary notion. But is it that arbitrary, Venu? Because the political rhetoric, I mean, Montek will say that disinvestment was there, and so what if he didn't, didn't spice that up, didn't highlight that? But does it, is it an indication that the political rhetoric is shifting when it comes to economics? Well, it, it, it is certainly shifting, because uh, one big example of how it is shifting is, can be seen in Bihar. Uh, people thought that Bihar would never do any reforms. It's, the mo it's, a, it's a laggard state. Uh, but uh, what Nitesh Kumar is doing uh, today in Bihar is way ahead of what many other states are attempting. He is very favorably disposed to a goods and services tax, which is a tax system, very modern tax system, which can transform India uh, by removing all kinds of cascading taxes. And it is probably the biggest fiscal stimulus that India can ever have. Uh, hmm. we'll, we'll have about 8% less indirect taxation. Uh, Bihar is for it. Bihar is also doing direct cash transfer, mm -hmm. which until about four or five years ago was described as a, as a World Bank conspiracy. <laughs> uh, you can't do direct cash transfer. It doesn't work in India, but Bihar is doing it. So I think in, in small, small ways, things are changing, and uh, which, uh, which should be recognized. But at the same time, I would say that there are many other reforms uh, which haven't happened. And I feel that there's a gestation period for uh, reform uh, pieces in India. For instance, the amendment to the Company Law Act, which is oh. our corporate, uh, India was supposed to get a modern company law, which started by Narasimha Rao, even today it's not there. Right? <coughs> it's 
several governments have tried to move it. So it's not happened. But, but now, when we talk about reason, and NK, if I can get you in on this, uh, what happens when politics becomes completely unreasonable, which is something uh, that was raised by Chris Patton as well? Uh, for example, let's see the tussle between North India and Maharashtra at this point over what looks like aggressive politics, but is actually a question of economics. So you have taxi drivers in the state of Maharashtra, who are mostly migrants from other parts of India. And you have a state government that's talking about giving licenses to only those who speak the local language and have been in the city for 15 years. Is this a question of politics or is this a question of economics? I think this is a question of misplaced populism. And I think that these are aberrations. These aberrations, I agree with Montague, are always very short-lived. Because in the end, I think that India's power as one large in common market, as a market where uh, in which people can move freely from one part to the other, begin to equalize the kind of advantages <coughs> and differentials in wage rates, is, a, is an inevitable fact. And therefore, I, I, I do believe that these kind of sporadic changes are episodic in the broad spectrum of the fact of India having irrevocably adopted a set of policies which will catapult us. I agree with Mukesh that uh, a 9% is a low ambition. A double digit really would be a more uh, realistic kind of an ambition. And I think that's the direction in which uh, we are inevitably moving forward. What this brings out is that in order to move it inevitably forward, you cannot only adopt policies which are driven by just the power of economics. You need to adopt policies in which you can negotiate, uh, strand the different regional parties, look to the political spectrum. And in the end, I think that sensible decisions do emerge, whether it be on land. And I think, Vignath, I agree with you that there are certain uh, embedded policy changes which are needed. But I think sensible policies will emerge, irrespective of whether uh, Mamta is able to threaten occasionally in cabinet meetings and so on. <laughs> I, I think I, I, I overlooked that, Barkha, because in the end, I think that we have a great ability to adopt policies which are India's long-term overall interest. And I think the dynamics and the dialectics of this is what this book essentially brings But, but Mukesh, we used to talk about a, a world without borders. Now, within India, because there is such a tussle over resources and urban migration is such a problem, I mean, you're from Mumbai. When you see something like this whole debate around taxi drivers, it's a metaphor, really, for a city that doesn't want any more new migrants. One way of looking at it is this is parochial politics. The other way of looking at it, this is about economics. How do you see it as a resident of Mumbai as well? Well, I think that uh, what we all have to first uh, realize is uh, we are Indians first. And India is above everything and I think that you know whether it is Mumbai or Delhi or Chennai or Calcutta right, uh, it belongs to all Indians and within that there has to be as I said earlier there has to be equal opportunity I think that the biggest challenge right, uh, for us in the coming decade is really about uh, employment and earning opportunities and this is nothing but a manifestation that we are not moving fast enough, right? And we really have to get out of the so-called <coughs> license raj. We in the corporate sector uh, have, uh, as Shekhar, I think, said, we've uh, 
networked and got ourselves uh, out of the license raj but the poor taxi wala mm. is still in the license raj mm. and that is the governance that we got to change mm. so and how does that change uh, what uh, i think that uh, the challenge before us is really how do we create uh, employment opportunities how do we create earning opportunities and i really think that there is only one measure on which we measure our progress and that is are we creating 15 20 million new employment and earning opportunities in the whole of india and are we doing this year in and year after because we are a young country and over the next 15 years we are going to have between 12 and 15 million new people enter the workforce and uh, that is our opportunity but that's also a challenge and we really have to equip ourselves to face that chris since you're the person who's argued on this panel that these are actually they, they can exist in silos economic growth can exist in a in, in a space and not necessarily overlap with political democracy does that mean that you could reach a point where economic economic sets the agenda for politics instead of the other way around that's not entirely my position um <laughs> my, my 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 position is that sooner or later economics and social development has an effect on politics um uh, it was a basic marxist proposition to which i uh, hold very strongly as a um, died in the wool conservative um <laughs> uh, but i i think it is it is plainly true um what i where i what i'm doubtful about is the argument that at a given level of per capita gdp um uh, of per capita wealth rather um countries automatically become democratic um singapore is always given as the hold out against that argument but people applied to mexico to south korea and to taiwan and to other places i'm not sure there is that degree of automaticity what i am sure about is that in the long term the rule of law accountability openness uh, matter whether you're making um chocolate which i used to do or whether you're uh, running an economy um i think those things are fundamental to economic success i'm going to open this to the floor very soon but make another quick comment from you on our attitude uh, culturally to wealth uh, which ties in also with uh, with the kind of recession that the world has just come out of or is still coming out of we've seen this big debate in india with the prime minister no less spoke about an end to conspicuous consumption huge controversy over what ceo salaries should be is that kind of a misplaced argument absolutely you know i mean <laughs> the uh, these government people you mean monte <laughs> <laughs> he's the only one around yeah. so i can refuse you uh, if you if you consider the compensation of government people and add all the free housing they get and all that you know ceos are nowhere near what they get you know, <laughs> you know if you live in a latian's bungalow Yeah. Heaven, you know, what would it take to buy? I mean, Montex House. Mukesh Basu talks about this. You know. So I think, I think you know, you know, if you want growth, you let people go for it, and give people promise that they'll be compensated for all the hard work they do. I India is a very materialistic country. It's never been spiritual. You just have to go to <laughs> go to go to any shopping mall, any five-star hotel. And you see how spiritual India is. And, <laughs> and yet, and, and, and uh, sorry, and yet, Mukesh, you announced a voluntary salary cut this past year. Why did you do that? What what compelled you to do that? 
Well, I thought that, uh, and this was the, it was personal because my board had linked it as a percentage of profits, and uh, you know, Reliance profits. Uh, Go on increasing every year, and I just can't make. <laughs> <laughs> I just can't make a percentage of that, and that's why we 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 cap that. And, no, I mean talking about uh, spirituality. Right? I, I believe that you know even our our Hindu philosophy teaches us that the pursuit of life is really for uh, dharma, earth, kama, and moksha. And what it really means is that. Uh, pursuit of uh, creation of wealth and pursuit of worldly pleasures, the materialistic pleasures that you talked about. Uh, this is what our uh, Hindu philosophy teaches us, provided they are done within the framework of ethics and then you achieve ultimately salvation. So all of this fits in. <laughs> That's it. <laughs> Uh, yeah, MK, you want to add to that? Yeah, I going just to want to add to <laughs> yeah. say that, uh, fortunately, Meghnath, nobody has so far accused Kautilya of being a non-ethical and non-spiritual. <laughs> <laughs> All right, um, uh, let's take it uh, to the audience now. I want to start uh, with Nita Ambani, uh, because I always do this to her. <laughs> uh, because we have not spoken about the roles of corporates in creating institutions. And you've always argued, uh, I know, that charity and philanthropy are two very different things. So when we talk about achieving change, where do you see the role of the private sector? Because, you know, you're, for example, quite involved in education, which we haven't spoken enough about. If we can just uh, get a mic, yeah, you have a mic, yeah. Well, Barkha, I personally have always believed in creating timeless institutions of excellence. The very fact that there are 10 children from the Ambani school studying here is a sense of great pride for me and for all Indians. I think the young educated youths is actually the wealth and the pride of India. And if we can harness their aspirations, they are going to create a new India. Whether we do it by ourselves, whether we do it in partnerships with the government, as long as we deliver. And that's what's needed. Education and, and really experimentation. You you want to say something, Mukesh? No. <laughs> I never say anything. After never say anything after me. <laughs> <laughs> uh, I know we've got lots of young kids waiting, but I can see Praful Patel in the audience. We're talking so much about politicians. Uh, Praful, if we can get you a, get a, a mic to Mr. Patel. What is it about politicians that makes them scared of economics? <laughs> <laughs> well, you're teasing me, Barkha, but uh, well, I think uh, at the fundamental uh, level, every politician fights an election to win, right? And uh, you just said that we won an election after five years in governance. And I think uh, the point everybody else was making, it was a question of equity, and I think uh, what our government did in the last five years was the underlying principle of trying to give you may talk of farm loan waivers as uh, something, you know, which is, uh, you know, something not acceptable. But I think uh, what we did is, and what Mukesh is also making a point is, that until and unless you carry the whole of India along, we're never really going to be successful. And I think that exactly is the underlying message, that what Montek sits in planning commission and does, or what Mukesh does at a corporate level, is to give India that fundamental base of equity. 
and till such time till such time i do not believe that whatever we may discuss we will ever achieve the targets which we are looking at so it's about creating inclusion let's let's uh, we've got young students who've written in with their questions uh, i'm going to call out your names if you can raise your hand and then we'll get a mic to you arjun madhavan where are you arjun there you are go ahead with your question yeah of change uh, i'd like to ask that interestingly i've i've read that india is moving towards becoming the youngest country uh into 2012 so what in your opinion from the from a perspective of economics or uh, politics or corporate governance what in your opinion is india doing or what should india do to capture this massive demographic demographic opportunity if i can add to that and maybe mukesh and monte can take this uh monte why is the government so old <laughs> <laughs> Well, I don't know what you mean by the government. I mean, you mean a particular group of people. Many people in the people. government. <laughs> no, no. I think uh, the, the issues the definitely, <laughs> definitely very important. Uh, since you know, I count myself as old. I'd be a vested interest if I tried to. No, I think the demographic transition is a very important issue. And I think your question, what are we doing? The, number one, and this is absolutely vital. Uh, a young population is not a great help if it's not a skilled and educated population. So what we're trying to do, uh, and that's really the essence of a lot of the push towards inclusive growth, is to gear both the government and the private sector and various types of public-private partnership to do a much better job of both educating, higher educating, and skilling—quite different things—the uh, population to a much greater extent than we've done before. That's very much on the agenda, and I think that's important. I mean, the second question, of course, is that you know policies have to be such. that support the kind of growth rate that can actually be supported by and absorb exactly this population and that's the whole growth agenda and the growth policy agenda i mean we are trying to get back to 9% others are saying we should do better i applaud that sentiment as soon as we get to 9% i promise we will try to go for double digit but you know it's, it's worth sort of having targets which are reasonable to reach in a short period I mean, certainly, if India grows over two, three decades at nine percent, it'll generate a huge amount of demand for employment. But it will be a demand for skilled employment, people who can handle the rapidly changing uh, skill needs of an economy that is integrating with the globe. So both these things have to be important. And if you miss out on one, I think the other will not be helpful. Mukesh, uh, just once again, you've often spoken about harnessing the skills of the young. and now reliance is planning to open a world class university are we not talking enough to our young people whether in government or private sector absolutely and let me like you know uh, react to your first uh, as uh, as i am becoming old right <laughs> i now like to tell and uh, if you look at the title of the book uh, not by reason alone i think that with age comes wisdom so <laughs> and wisdom is is very important yeah. and i think that you know talking about uh, engaging uh, with the young it is uh, absolutely critical i mean i was just looking around and when i see all the young uh, faces here and you just have to see the expressions on the faces of all these young people mm -hmm. and what they are going to achieve over the next 20 years and you know when you talk about uh, institutions neeta talked about institutions montec like and i think really institutions that are required in india will reverse engineer our future they really meet the 
aspirations of these young people and uh, when arjun talked about uh, you know what is it that is required and i think fundamentally we really require a change in governance and governance is not only about government mm. it's about how we deal with each other right and i i think that governance uh, really starts at the uh, and within india we've got this large trend. it starts at the family level how you relate to each your other. children how you relate to each other and then moves up i think that uh, within corporations uh, again it's very it's a matter of pride for us that uh, uh, you know even we it used to be said that uh, only in america uh, there is success in failure and what does that mean so said okay if a company becomes bankrupt uh, it can again become successful and we've demonstrated it in satyam in our own country yeah. so that's, that's governance and when you move beyond that you know can we talk about education institutions where people are again doing the right things are we researching for tomorrow's india are we researching really for a 21st century india and i think that that's happening see even in our political parties right we now have our young leaders talking about inner party democracy yeah. which is refreshing and i think so a lot of things are happening uh, as montek said we we don't like to think about the positive aspects of where <laughs> india is going and you know i think that we should all be very very optimistic and it's absolutely essential to engage the youth it's essential to have an aspiration in terms of saying that why can't india have a university that is among the top 20 in the world today yeah. we don't have a university that is even in the top 100 in the world yeah. and i think it is doable right if you look at the top 20 universities in the world they are more than 100 years old but that doesn't mean that we shouldn't have an aspiration that india cannot do it in 10 years and i think it's really for these young people right the youngsters that i see on the top floor it yeah. is their time and they will do it very you want to quickly add to that then i go to my next question no, no, i just want to add a piece of statistic that in india of nearly 50% of all incremental employment in the last 10 years uh, they are self employed so i think this is a little known fact other economies have not they don't they don't don't show a similar pattern 50% of uh, incremental employment all self employed so something needs to be done about the self employed self employed as well all right with mukesh sir about small uh, uh, siddharth george siddharth george at the back there if we can get your mic yeah you can just rush him a mic please or you can just run forward and, and and grab one yeah <laughs> yeah. All right, who wants to take that NK? <laughs> and then uh, yeah make that was to take that then if you go ahead 
Uh, Bihar, okay. no, Bihar from where you are, not exactly the most decriminalized state. <laughs> but you know, Bihar is also changing. And I think that one of the fortunate facts that I will like, say that, of course, everything has a contrafactual. But one of the more fortunate facts is Bihar, which was traditionally known to have the highest amount of crime rate, the highest number of politicians who had criminal records, has vastly changed in the last five years resulted in an 11% rate of growth, the second fastest growing state in India, and most of the criminals are, I think, in jail. And I just suggest <laughs> that they are in the right place where they belong, and it has just meant that in a few years' time, you can reverse years of misgovernance. It requires political rectitude, a degree of political will. And I do believe that as time goes on, and a more development-centric approach begins to replace an approach based where elections are based on caste and class and communal divides and development cuts across these divides, you will see a decriminalization, you will see certainly much better quality of legislatures, much better quality of parliamentarians whose signs we are already beginning to see. So there is hope and I'm optimistic. All right, Meghnath, quickly then we go to the next no, question. I think, I think it, it's a matter that uh, because going to jail was respectable during the independence struggle. <laughs> no, no, this is serious. People didn't want to disqualify people who had been to jail from standing for politics. Yeah. Old culture. Now, times have changed, but of course, it, it is politicians who do not want to avoid being uh, criminal if they can make money. So they don't want to prevent uh, themselves from being disqualified. But Are I think it will happen. It's a matter of will, as N.K. said. But will is lacking. All right, Vrinda Shukla, where are you? There. Let's feature a mic. Go ahead, go ahead. Well, um, I, I think you're being um, very flattering about China. Um, uh, after all, the Chinese themselves talk about um, some of the next generation of leaders as being the princes. Uh, that is, those who are uh, in their uh, positions today or are likely to be in their positions tomorrow uh, because of uh, who their father was. It's a it's a good old-fashioned British principle, which we're um, uh, trying to put uh, b b behind us now. Um, what I do think is imperative in both India and China, uh, and affects the quality of governance, uh, is uh, an aspect of the last question. Um, and that is the huge importance in both systems, whether democratic or authoritarian, of being tough on corruption. And I think you can be tough on corruption within the rule of law, but I think that some of the things you have to do in order to be tough on corruption strain 
all our collective views on civil liberties. I think you have to be prepared to do uh, surveillance and monitoring of uh, phone calls and those sort of things. Yeah. One reason why Singapore and Hong Kong have been so successful is they've been fantastically good at uh, eliminating corruption and keeping it out. And I think corruption, whether meritocratic um, corruption or democratic <laughs> corruption um, or authoritarian corruption, is a serious ball and chain around the ankle of both uh, China and India. India. I can see uh, Nicholas Stern joining us now. I'm going to come to you, sir, in just a second because I'm seeing so many young faces up at the top. I thought we just have some open questions. Uh, raise your hand if you have a question. My God, so many hands. We have time just for one question. The girl in the blue sweater there, if we can reach her a mic. Just stand up and ask your question so we can see you. Yeah? Um, with regards to corruption, um, they estimate that the anti-poverty programs and stuff that India has really only maybe 20% of the money actually reaches people. What are you personally, MK, as you know, MP in Bihar, going to do to fix corruption within your government? <laughs> well, I think that your question is perhaps broader than Bihar. Because in Bihar, we have fixed it quite a bit. Because it's because we have fixed it, we have grown from just 3.5% rate of growth to an average rate of growth of 11.03%, just a touch below Gujarat's mind-boggling 11.05. So we have fixed the stuff in Bihar, but your question is a broader one. And I'm sure that that question embeds two basic principles, how to improve the efficiency and efficacy of public delivery systems, and some of the proposals which are currently under the consideration of government are moving away from a whole host of anti-poverty schemes which are driven by entitlement into more innovative ways of delivering it. Perhaps cash transfer is a favorite idea of Meghnath Desai. Voucher systems, which are targeted specifically to the poor, have fewer schemes, more targeted schemes, more innovative ways of delivering it and emulating the, the, some of the debilitating aspects of poverty. We are moving, therefore, wherever governance is good in states, those states have registered this in high rates of growth but I think in overall terms we are experimenting with a whole host of measures to improve the efficiency and efficacy of public delivery systems. So hopefully this, this mind-boggling figure of just 12% reaching will undergo a change. Montek, wouldn't you share that? <laughs> well, <clears throat> you know, this, I don't know where these numbers come from but <laughs> I want to clarify. First of all, it's simply not true that only 15%, that's 15 is the usual number mentioned that 15% reaches the poor. I think there's some misunderstanding here. You know, many years ago, I used to work for the then Prime Minister, Mr. Rajiv Gandhi, and he had volunteered based on a trip in rural areas that he thought that of the schemes we had, he doubted whether more than 15% actually reached the poor. But of course, his point was that these were not targeted schemes. I mean, in the name of the poor, we brought in a team, a scheme. The scheme actually benefited all kinds of people, and the view was that only 15% went to the poor. Since then, we've got a lot of schemes that are actually targeted at the poor. Undoubtedly, there's leakage, but I've looked at the results on these very much in great detail, and it is simply not true that the percentage of leakage is that high. You know, in all probability, 25% leakage might be taking place, but 75% is actually getting to where it's meant to be getting. I mean, there's a lot of data on this, and one of the issues is, you know, when you have a when you have a scheme that affects 
10 million people. 15% missing out is quite a large number. So I think the degree of targeting is much better than you make out. That's not to say, by the way, that the schemes are performing very efficiently. I mean, you set up a school, you put a lot of poor people go to the school, but then you ask the question, is the quality of education good enough? And there the answer is it's not. But that's not the same thing as the benefits go somewhere else. That's more like how do you make expenditure perform the functions that it's meant to perform. So there are serious problems. It is not the case that uh, the, the actual beneficiaries aren't getting the benefit well, that's, and that somebody else is getting the that's benefit. What we would need one more hour to debate that. I'm going to squeeze in one last question, the young boy here in the front row, if we can just reach him the mic. Just stand up here, the front row, yeah, so we can reach you the mic. Or just say out your question. Um, Mike. Mike, okay, Does, do we have a mic just there? Just coming. Oh, it went downstairs? Okay. Just All shout right, out yeah. your question. Uh, okay. uh, my name is Harry. I just wanted to ask, the Indian diaspora is more than 20 million strong. What do the panel think is the role that we can play in India's growth in the future? Stay abroad. Mukesh, you want to take that? The diaspora? Stay Time abroad. for double? Meghna? Stay abroad. Stay abroad. <laughs> <laughs> Says you I'll, I'll, who spends I'll, all your time I'll, in India. Yeah, but, yeah? But, but only to see you. <laughs> only to see me. Okay, that's always a good reason. But but well, I, I have a uh, very contrarian background. I have facts, Meghnat, say that uh, uh, we now have virtually in in every sphere of life, right? Uh, uh, Indians wanting to come back, come back, accomplished Indians in in literally, and I think that in uh, the advice that I give to. Uh, to young people who are graduating out is to say that uh, you know, whatever had to be done in the West has been done and I, th I still think that they need to come back and the opportunities and it's just not uh, nation building but I also think it's self building the fulfillment of achieving something the fulfillment of doing something that impacts uh, lots of people and, uh, so they can the all come to you for jobs, everybody here? Of <laughs> course. <laughs> <laughs> but uh, I, 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 and I, I really think that you know, India is really blessed, both uh, in the US as well as uh, in uh, Europe, with a, with a connection that raises our status. And the achievements of the diaspora in uh, outside of India are uh, help India in terms of... Uh, Global really branding, branding itself yeah. as saying that we are emerging, we are building a 21st century India. Look at all our 100,000 plus students in all the foreign universities and they will always be in the top 5 percentile. But beyond that, particularly uh, as we see the world over the next 20 years, the opportunity really is uh, back in India. And uh, so come yes, back we've home. talked about problems, but I think, you know, as I always say, India is not a country of a billion problems. It's a country of a billion opportunities. That's well put. Chris, quickly, you wanted to add to that. Yeah, yeah I just, uh, and it's relevant to what's just been said. Um, first of all, I hope you don't all go back because uh, we, <laughs> we wouldn't have a national health service and it would ruin <laughs> And, and it would ruin the economy. <laughs> but um, I think there's a really serious point here about higher education and universities. Um, this year in the United States, three quarters of all science PhD dissertations will be written by foreigners. 
and a huge number of those by Indians. Yes. And increasingly, um, the foreign students who go to America to do their doctoral work, and of course it's after doctoral work that you're doing the most, uh, the work with the most impact on uh, the, the lives of others, uh, increasingly fewer people go back to their own societies after doing their doctorates. Half the uh, new startups in Silicon Valley at the moment are startups by first generation Americans or by immigrants who've gone there to study. Uh, so uh, one thing you've got to do, in my view, uh, is to invest more in higher education and research. It is extraordinary that Hong Kong, which I know passingly well, Hong Kong with, <laughs> Hong Kong with six and a half million people has two of the best universities in the world. And we don't have that. And uh, it's a lesson for Europe um, which apart from this country is uh, challenged in higher <laughs> education and it's a lesson for you too. Alright, I'm going to ask uh, Nick's turn now to close this uh, for us. He's just joining us in from Paris. If we can reach him a mic. Yes. Um, where shall I say? Stay here or there? or uh, Whatever you prefer. You can. Nick, why, don't you why don't you come up? up? Come on up. You can, you can, you can come here. Sure Absolutely, just come here, quickly yeah. come here. All these men, all these no, 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 men, no, no. all these men sitting we're, down. We're reversing gender protocol here. Okay. Come on, <laughs> come on. Please go ahead. Um, first, um, welcome to everybody. Very, very belatedly to the London School of Economics. It's uh, it's absolutely splendid, NK, that you chose to have this occasion uh, occasion here. And uh, as you know, this is the uh, the school of so many important Indian uh, scholars, um, but we remember particularly I.G. Patel, in whose uh, name I have my chair. Um, so welcome to everybody. Thank you for coming. Um, I was asked to say something about the difficulty of making economic policy, what a splendid book it is, and N.K. I probably don't have time to say very much about economic policy, or do I? A little bit. Okay. Um, <laughs> why is it so difficult to translate good economics into good policy? This is, after all, the London School of Economics and Political Science. Um, let me just give an example of comparative advantage. When Paul Samuelson got his Nobel Prize in Economics, which was very new, it was just the second one, and uh, MIT was full of um, rather arrogant uh, physicists and chemists, all of whom had Nobel Prizes, and uh, they thought this subject was a bit of an upstart and they asked Paul to explain a concept, an important concept in economics that uh, was indeed important but also non-trivial and he said comparative advantage uh, and I think that's a very powerful example Bill Clinton, the great persuader used to say that was the one thing that he found difficult to put across and it's not because it's wrong, it's right it's because it's subtle and uh, we have to think how to explain simple concepts which are also subtle concepts and in areas where like India but not only India past policies create entrenched interests so the people who um, some people will be confused that's our lack of clarity as economists but some will uh, see a threat to their, their entrenched interests and those who will gain usually uh, the consumer or the person looking for a job uh, not the person who has a job he's usually worried about losing his job but the person people who will gain will be many and the people who will be hit will be few the people who uh, will be hit know who they are <laughs> and the people who will gain may not know who they are 
And this is the kind of problem, and let me just move to the book, that uh, N.K. grapples with with his book, because he knows his economics, he knows about the principles of policy, and he knows that they matter. But he grapples with the problems of making things happen, and that's why it's such a rich and important book. And he points to institutions and the dynamics of politics and policy. Now, lots of idle academics sort of let words like institutions and governance and the dynamics of policy sort of trip off their tongue and they'll witter on for hours on end. But NK knows what it means. It's about real hard, difficult examples, whether it be in water or electricity or land. These are the realities of policy making which he clarifies so thoughtfully in his book. But let me close on NK. Let's embarrass him just a little bit. Um, NK, you have this wonderful realistic optimism. And if you're a pessimist, you never get anything done. If you're unrealistic, you never get anything done. So if you want to get something done, you have to be a realistic optimist or an optimistic realist, whatever your mood is. And uh, NK par excellence is that. And it's looking at his irrepressibility, his uh, seemingly infinite energy and uh, extraordinary humanity that those of us who do bash our heads against policy making, probably most people, actually everybody on the panel, does it or has done it and will continue to do it, recognizes uh, that inspiration in NK's irrepressible realistic optimism. So that's what we celebrate today as well as an absolutely splendid book. Now who is it that announced that the book is launched? Is it NK? It can be you. We can have Shekhar who? and Shobna also joining us uh, on the stage for the official launch of the book. Somebody you. must declare this book launched. <laughs> that's your job. <laughs> it's your job to declare Shobna. that. We can have Shobna and Shekhar Shobna. join us on the stage. Where's the champagne? <laughs> says Meghnag. You have to stand to launch a book. You need to unwrap it as well. Oh, wow. Thank you. Well, so can we no, Shobna, to, I can we ask Shobna, Shobna would you like to okay. launch Shobna, the book? Will you Could you declare that, that the book is officially launched? Why don't we just get you the mic? Yeah. You take a break. Okay. You have to. Okay. Shall I hold the mic for you? Okay. Let me do that for you. Oops, but I'm cabled here. Okay. Shobna, go ahead. <laughs> yeah. Just hold the mic for her, and then she can. After this extremely interesting panel discussion, the book is finally launched. <laughs> I hope all of you get a chance to go through it. Well, let's have a big round of applause for our panel and for being such a great audience.